hey, it's that guy. What's his name again? You know, he was in Gremlins. Oh, yeah, the guy from War of the Satellites. <laughs> yeah, you remember? Yeah, <laughs> of course, War of the Satellites. Also, uh... uh the I used to watch it on the Million Dollar Movie uh, every week in the 60s. Uh, uh, the Burbs, Twilight Zone the Movie, Looney Tunes Back in Action. So really anything that it's Joe on, Dante made. It's, it's on, on the tip of your tongue, yeah. right? Oh, uh, After Hours. He was in After Hours. That's right. You know who I'm talking about, the bartender. Yeah, Jonathan Hayes. <laughs> no, not Jonathan Hayes. We're talking about Dick Miller. Of course, Dick Miller. The actor that every young cinephile eventually goes, hey, that guy, I like him. Yeah, best known, in addition for all those Joe Dante movies, for being one of Roger Corman's muses in the mm-hmm. 1950s. A guy who was in movie after movie, and Roger Corman had a sizable rep company that he kept returning to over and over again because they were cheap. That's right. They would do the work and they wouldn't complain too much mm-hmm. and they'd show up when he asked them to uh, in probably the shitty ac- accommodations that he would get for them. Mm-hmm. And Dick Miller was one of those guys. And I think the consensus favorite. Yes. Right? He's the one everybody likes. Yeah, everybody likes Dick. Have you ever met somebody who's like some contrarian who went something like, I hate Dick Miller. I don't get why people no. like him. No way. I mean, if people know who Dick Miller is, if yeah. they know him enough to identify him, mm-hmm. sure, Surely they like Dick Miller. They have to, right? And But why do they like him? Like, that's the question that, like, I was asking myself while I was reading the new biography that recently came out, You Don't Know Me, But You Love Me, The Many Lives of Dick Miller. Mm-hmm. And, and like, the book itself asks the same question as well. It's like, why do people like him? Is it just because it's somebody that they recognize? There's some of that, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely a uh, canon of that guy actors mm-hmm. who you're pleased with just because they're... It hits some pleasure center in your head, you know, like some frisson in your brain of like recognition. Because like Dick Miller is not somebody that like his meaty roles is what people fall in love with. Because honestly, he starred in what? If we'll be very generous, three things. War of the Satellites, uh, Rock All Night, and A Bucket of Blood, his most famous Mm -hmm. film. But I think A Bucket of Blood is the one that... Mm -hmm. I think that has made a lot of Dick Miller fans. Do you think so? Because I didn't see uh, Bucket of Blood until way after I had said, man, I like Dick Miller. Oh, that's interesting because A Bucket of Blood was, for me, one of those movies that kind of got me interested in movies like this when mm-hmm. I was an early teenager. Yeah, I didn't see it in probably until my college years, I think I finally sat down and watched it. Uh, interesting. So, well, A Bucket of Blood... Why don't we talk just a bit about it? Because I revisited it this week. A Bucket of Blood was the first of three comedies that Roger Corman directed in the very late 1950s. I think 1959, Mm -hmm. 1960, along with Little Shop of Horrors and Creature from Haunted Sea. Mostly rushed because um, I don't remember which one it was. Was it uh, Bucket of Blood where the union was going to pay them like one extra day and Corman wanted to get a film right under that contract window? I believe that was Little Shop of Horrors. Okay. They filmed it. It was, you know, famously shot in two days and they filmed it in the last week of December Mm -hmm. because new rules were going to hit in 1960. Yeah, and Corman's like just out of principle like you wanted to get in a movie right under and there's that famous story Little Shop of Horrors standing sets they could use it they just restructured their bucket of blood Dick Miller was offered Little Shop of Horrors afterwards after making a bucket of blood he turned it down mm. anyway but let's talk about a bucket of blood which came out first and I believe a bucket of blood exists because it was shot on standing sets at the Chaplin studio yes it was right. it was um, something else some rock and roll picture I believe they made it was a coffee house and as I learned in the Dick Miller biography there was 
was a whole genre of beatnik exploitation movies, mm-hmm. most of which didn't really have a lot to do with beatnik culture. No, it's the idea of what beatnik culture is. They're, hey, daddy-o! <laughs> yeah, they were just juvenile delinquent movies, yes. really. So one of the reasons A Bucket of Blood is so fondly remembered is because it is, it's the one that I think comes closest to creating that beatnik atmosphere, or what we would like to think was the beatnik atmosphere. Just a bunch of artists hanging around, clickety-clacking in their fingers. Re- saying poetry on stage, and <laughs> you know, showing art, and yeah, again, daddy-o, and yeah. uh, uh, it's a mad pad, dad. <laughs> Stuff like that, yep. And you have Dick Miller in the cent- center playing a simpleton, if you will. A, well, a simpleton is a nice word for it. It's been speculated that perhaps he has mental issues. Yes. Uh, but it's ambiguous in Dick Miller's performance, I think. Mm-hmm. He plays Walter Paisley, the meek and mild busboy at this beatnik coffee shop, who looks up to all these sophisticated beatnik artists and, <laughs> and wants nothing more than their respect, and especially the love of the beautiful Barbara Morris. And he goes home and he's got a big lump of clay and he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an artist. Be a nose. Be a, <laughs> be a nose. nose. Which was something that um, artists uh, love that line so much. Art so the, Spiegelman. Yeah, Art Spiegelman yeah. named, I think one of his exhibitions or his books on that. Yeah. And they actually had a photo and then a drawing of Dick Miller on it. <laughs> so uh, he accidentally stabs his cat through rather contrived circumstances and he gets the beautiful idea. Why don't we melt this clay over the cat and boom, instant cat sculpture. Yeah, people cat. love it. It just, there's something there, man. And everyone says, oh, this is an incredible meta meditation on mortality and everything he's like oh well i could do i could do more well he accidentally kills a (laughs) undercover police officer puts clay over him he's got a statue dead man (laughs) that's right they love that but the guy who runs the coffee shop has figured out what's going on and he's horrified but Ah, you listen, it's getting people through the door. Wealthy art collectors are coming, including Bruno Vesota. <laughs> I don't uh, know who that is. Bruno Vesota is the fat guy who was in all the early Roger Corman <laughs> okay. movies. You'll oh, know, that's right. You know him if you see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick Miller was good friends with him, and he passed away a few years after making A Bucket of Blood. Mm-hmm. Right? I only know that from the biography. Uh, so, Bucket of Blood. Cheap picture. Yeah. Uh, obviously made within constrained circumstances. Dick Miller, charming in the middle center of the role. I was a bit disappointed when we revisited Little Shop of Horrors for this podcast, Mm -hmm. the Corman one, and I was sort of bracing myself to be similarly disappointed by A Bucket of Blood. Did you not see it when Dick Miller came to- I did. That's the last time I saw it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dick Miller came to Toronto a few years ago, and- There's a photo with me, and it looks like he's on the doors of death. (laughs) I'm glad he can get one more in with me before- I mean, he's still alive, Mm -hmm. so that was like five years ago. I spoke to Dick Miller and his wife via Skype. Did you? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, it was great, but I mean- one problem was I had just watched the documentary about him mm-hmm. and it's like I I didn't have a lot of other questions for him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just I just wanted to like soak in his <laughs> presence like And he's a he's a fairly old man. Yeah, so he's a like... nice a nice man and had a good chat. His <laughs> wife is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. um uh, Torontonian. Yeah, Lainey Miller. Okay, but anyway, back to a bucket of blood. I was bracing myself to be disappointed mm-hmm. on this reviewing. So much fun. It's great. Yeah. It's I think one of the best things Corman ever did. It's a really tight piece of storytelling. Uh, Charles Griffith's script has a bunch of jokes in it like it's fun. The dialogue's terrific. Yeah. Uh, it's well directed by Corman. He establishes the space. Mm-hmm. Of, there are two sets, basically. Yeah, apartment and the the coffee shop. Yeah, and he establishes the space and the the dynamics, and he he lays out all the visual information very well. Uh, but Dick Miller is, I think, amazing in this movie <laughs> because yep. he's nerdy and a bit Jerry Lewisy at the start, and then he gets increasingly crazy as it goes along, and you buy it, yeah. and you buy that he was actually crazy the whole time. And like one of the reasons why this movie is so good 
good is because it's a horror comedy where the horror and the comedy bleed into each other. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, very true. Well, of yeah, it's the classic thing. Like, the horror is never a joke mm-hmm. because it's actually real and people are dying. But it's still funny about what's going on and the attitudes and the reactions to this horror that's happening. And you underestimate Dick Miller so much in the early going that when he actually you, turns into a homicidal killer, he's genuinely, I think, quite frightening. And you don't want him to turn into a homicidal killer because you kind of feel bad for him up until that point. So you're kind of yeah. with him with the cat and you're like, well, I hope he doesn't go to the next step. And then when it happens, you're like, wait, who am I supposed to follow? Because I like this guy, but this bad stuff is happening. And also the his final rejection at the end. Don't you feel it? It's sad, even though he's murdered a couple people by that point. Yeah, because you, you, you can you can identify with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, not me. Not me. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Both the ladies man through and through. Yeah, yeah. So like a something like a bucket of blood, you would assume that, you know, Corman saw that Dick Miller could carry a picture. And at this point, Dick Miller had done a bunch of stuff for uh, Corman. Famously, his first role on Apache Women, he uh, played the bad guys and the good guys in the <laughs> same picture. And, you know, Dick Miller, if, especially when you read his biography, you realize that, like, he's a guy that never even really wanted to be an actor. It's mostly something he kind of stumbled into, that he was more of a bon vivant doing whatever came his way. He hung out at the beach a lot. He hung out at the famous Schwab's grocery store. Until or... it closed down every day. Yeah. Yeah. Sh- Schwab's, the place where Lana Turner was allegedly discovered. She you was not. that old story, <laughs> right? Nope. Yep. Yeah. Didn't actually happen. I don't quite understand Schwab's. Schwab's was this famous drugstore. Yeah, drugstore. Where apparently like very famous people hung out as well as not famous people mm-hmm. and it was just this Hoping melting, to be pot, this melting pot of all of Hollywood so like every day supposedly Dick Miller would just sit down at the counter and just hang out with his friends or anybody else that came uh, into uh, the drugstore just trading stories and just biding time until his phone rang and he could get a job which and, would usually be with Corman and one of the people was Bobby Jordan from the Bowery Boys I think that was his name right Bobby Jordan one of the lesser Bowery Boys I, I don't know maybe be, I mean in the book there's a famous story that when when uh, Miller was a teenager, he actually lived in L.A. And um, he w- uh, there was an East Side kid. I don't remember which okay, one it is. Okay, this is who I'm thinking of. Was yeah. it at Schwab's or not? No, it was oh, when okay. he was like a teenager, when he was 12 years old. And he hated him so much because <laughs> the kid had such like a huge ego that Dick Miller punched him in the face at one point. I'm one of the lesser Bowery boys. <laughs> he would later go on and die of al- alcoholism at, I think, 41 years old. That's sad. Well, one of... Dick Miller's good friends of this era was a fellow by the name of Jack Nicholson. And Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Jack Nicholson, of course, was in the Roger Corman orbit, mm-hmm. uh, famously in Little Shop of Horrors. Taking and- those bit roles with Miller, uh, and they were supposedly like best pals because they both had something to like talk about, to experience. They were both on the same level mm-hmm. until a certain point, obviously. Yeah. So Dick Miller never quite became a star. Mm-hmm. He-, he never became a star. He never period. at all became a star. <laughs> and he in the book attributes it somewhat to the fact that he turned down the lead role of Little Shop of Horrors. That has, I mean, well, yeah, that, Jonathan Hayes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Dick Miller is more famous than Jonathan Hayes is. He is, yeah. But Dick Miller says that after this, he felt he was permanently doomed to being a bit player and a supporting player. Mm-hmm. Well, the Corman curse, like the idea that people that worked in these early Roger Corman pictures were either on their way down or on their way to like the middling bottom. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there was no like, as far as actors go, like straight to the top and taking starring roles. Well, like everyone that. remembers Jack Nicholson. Yes. Which he, he became famous kind of as a fluke. Yes. He, he was lucky enough to be an easy rider. And he was like the, the like latter period of that while like Dick Miller was mm. at the beginning and he just kind of met Jack mm. Nicholson on the way down up. Who knows? I also get the sense from reading the book that Dick Miller sort of hung out and 
was on the beach and at Schwab's waiting for Corman to call and he wasn't as disciplined about his career as say Jack Nicholson and was. you know Miller says as well that like he was bad at auditions he didn't like doing it you get the sense that he just did a bunch of them that failed mm-hmm. and he was like well why should I keep doing this if it's not going to work out for me so in the 60s he had lean years because mm-hmm. he was no longer a cool young guy uh, but but why don't we talk a bit about some of the other 50s films because yeah we both watched rock all night this yep. week speaking of juvenile delinquent films this was one that again i mean it stars miller in the sense that he's the like m- biggest character in this ensemble mm-hmm. <laughs> which is mostly 48 minutes of rocking out watching some bands play it's a hangout movie yeah. it's it's like so many corman movies of this period it's just one location mm-hmm. it's set at an all-night cool counterculture rock and roll club uh i mean this is significantly before the beatles so its definition of rock and roll may not be your definition of rock and roll but the platters are there yeah everybody loves the platters platters uh (laughs) there's another band i can't remember dick miller plays kind of the anti walter paisley in Mm -hmm. this one he's a cool hep cat (laughs) yep bit of a wisecracker sardonic sense of humor doesn't really take shit from anybody uh when the film actually uh pops off at about 48 minutes in two robbers come into the place and they're on the run from the cops and they kind of hold the place up. Dick Miller doesn't even get up out of his chair for the next 20 minutes, just throwing verbal barbs at the baddies as trying to throw them off guard. He's a lot like Lenny Bruce, just in the way he looks and the way he sounds. You know, but the thing about Dick Miller, and it's weird that Roger Corman didn't kind of jump on this, is that he does have like this like cut, dick tracy like face yes that he would have been perfect as like the bad dude in these juvenile delinquent pictures or even like the sci-fi films mm-hmm. but instead he was always relegated to like comedy relief off to the side and because he's so short he's sort of like a precursor to the al pacino type of star <laughs> yeah. of the early 70s something he's not conventionally handsome but mm-hmm. has a certain charisma and rock all night really captures that charisma and it's like a Dick Miller showcase here. But it was weird because I had a question about it. And one of the producers of that documentary, uh, that guy, Dick Miller, was like, don't talk about rock all night to him. And I was like, really? ah, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> why. Why doesn't he like it? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he didn't get residuals or anything like that from no, it. Too bad. <laughs> because the film is actually fun. Yeah. And uh, when it was going to be remade, uh, when they're doing the Rebel Highway show where they were uh, taking a juvenile delinquency pictures and um, remaking them with people like Robert Rodriguez, John Milius, even Ralph Bakshi make one. One. Mm-hmm. Quentin Tarantino pre-Pulp Fiction considered for a moment of remaking Rock All Night and it would have been perfect if he had done it because it's exactly his kind of thing. Yeah. And you also watched War of the Satellites. Boring. Terrible film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw it years ago. Uh, did there's, not revisit. There's a reason that on the triple pack of Corbin Pictures it's on the third disc and it doesn't have commentary while the other two do. <laughs> That's the one that also has Attack of the Crab Monsters and Not and of the Thirst. Thirst. Yeah, which also has a Dick Miller a classic Dick Miller bit where he plays the vacuum cleaner salesman. Yep, and he's like, you want, you want to buy? You don't want to buy? It doesn't matter to me. Just let me show it to you. That's one of those Dick Miller scenes that everyone talks about when talking about Dick Miller. In fact, I think the Dick Miller documentary highlights that moment. I mean, it's that and his other role that everybody knows him from that's not like actual supporting role is in The Terminator where he plays the gun salesman Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is, is he the one who Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back to? No, that's a police officer. He's the one who gives him the gun and he's kind of like explaining what the guns do next at the end, Schwarzenegger just points the gun at him and shoots him. You yeah. don't see it. It just comes to black. So anyway, 
Dick Miller, no longer a cool youth, gained a bit of weight, spent the 60s having some lean years. Uh, he did write the screenplay that eventually became Jerry Lewis's Which Way to the Front? Yep, which he uh, as goes into great detail in the book. He actually sold it to a company who didn't tell him they were actually rewriting it, and he read about it in a trade paper, and he was like, wait a minute, this is my script. He had to do arbitration mm-hmm. with the Writers Guild, so in the finished film, he is like one of three credited story contributors or something mm. yeah he uh, also wrote the script to the uh filipino shot tnt jackson <laughs> yes. which is probably most famous for the trailer cut by joe dante and alan arkish has the line winner of the ebony fist award which is a made-up award that they <laughs> yes. did for the trailer <laughs> but dick miller had a comeback of sorts in the 70s mm-hmm. when the next generation of filmmakers, people like Joe Dante, Jonathan Kaplan. Well, supposedly when Jonathan Kaplan got his first job, it was a nurse's picture, I think probably the young nurses, Mm -hmm. that when he got it, Corman gave him a bunch of instructions. And as he was on his way out, he was like, oh yeah, also give a role to Dick Miller in the film. And then it became kind of like the lucky charm of all these people to put Mm -hmm. him in their pictures. And they all remembered him from Mm -hmm. movies like Little Shop of Horrors that Mm -hmm. were on TV a lot because they were cheap. Yeah, uh, or they were in public domain because Corman, when he produced his own films, didn't think there would be any life after the theater, so he didn't even uh, bother registering them or anything like that. So by the 70s, no longer the swinging hepcat, Dick Miller had grown into this kind of gruff-voiced... Blue-collar uh, barman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he is in many most famously I think Gremlins and Gremlins 2 the new batch yep that's right uh, and Gremlins 2 is a movie where he has a lot of screen time mm. relatively speaking yeah well, he's involved in the story actually and, uh, and I love that I love <laughs> that there was like a big gigantic studio production like filmed in Rockefeller Plaza mm-hmm. Warner well, Brothers and Dick Miller is up there on the screen so there's a story that goes that when they gave it to Joe Dante he could do whatever he wanted and that was his like requisite to make Gremlins 2 is they couldn't crack it so they're like Joe Dante come back in here and he's like I'll do it but you guys can't say anything I can do whatever I want they're like sure fine and that's why Dick Miller has such a big role I mean like Dick Miller is in Spielberg's 1941 Mm -hmm. Uh, he plays like the enemy of one of the main kids in it Mm -hmm. and supposedly because that film tanked so badly it kind of like soured Steven Spielberg on hiring like old timey actors to the point that like when Joe Dante gave him like the cast list of I think it was either Explorers or Gremlins Spielberg is like, I don't know about this. You obviously went and uh, mined the uh, retirement home for old actors here. Oh, okay. That's such <laughs> bullshit. First of all, the best thing about 1941 is are the it, all those character actors. So many, so yeah. many, and yeah, they're they're great. I, I like that. That's, that's not why that movie flopped. <laughs> yeah, that is not the lesson that Spielberg should have taken from 1941 to like, oh, I cast too many old timey actors that nobody knows. That seems like a real fundamental difference between him and Joe Dante, mm-hmm. doesn't it? We were listening to that Leonard Malton podcast where they had Dante as a guest. This is a total digression, but they were Mm -hmm. talking about how Leonard Malton called up Joe Dante once and said, hey, I met Hans Hall at a party. Mm -hmm. Imagine that party. I met Hans (laughs) Hall at a party. Could you give him a part in one of your movies? And Dante said, oh, great. In fact, I think we have a part that he could be good for in this next one. Call up Hans Hall. Wanted too much money. (laughs) That's crazy. Hunts Hall being, of course, uh, one of the Bowery boys. <laughs> That's great. The one who wasn't Leo Gorsi. <laughs> and so, and Steven Spielberg uh, did work with Joe Dante a lot, even though that I think on one of those podcasts, Joe Dante is like, eh, we're not really friends, we're more acquaintances. Yeah. <laughs> That's sad. I think uh, Spielberg should throw him a bone. But Joe Dante 
was good friends with Dick Miller and like a genuine friendship actually formed. Um, there's some stories in the biography where like when Dick Miller got sick, Giordante made sure he was okay and would like come to the mm. hospital every day just to check up on him and stuff like that. And Dick Miller is in almost all of his movies. Uh, yeah, almost. Like if he's not, there's like a very specific reason why he couldn't be in them. R- right up to the hole where yeah. he's in it for, I think, one second as the pizza delivery man. And the reason for that is there's like two, which is that he, he has difficulty remembering lines now and they actually shot in Canada and Dick mm-hmm. Miller was a little too old to actually travel so mm-hmm. they shot that one shot in LA just to be able to include him in it yeah I mean like that's the sad part right is that like Dick Miller never he was always the mascot for these people but no one was ever like oh I'll give you a role in a movie like in the 80s or even the late 70s when he would have been able to do that it's frustrating that there are so few movies where he has a lot to do mm-hmm. Demon Knight is one of them that's right yeah the mm-hmm. Ernest Dickerson film uh, but yeah aside from that it's just moments like he's got a great scene in corvette summer oh yeah he has a great scene he has a great scene in motorama (laughs) yes he does uh so you savor those scenes and you're always happy to see him and i'm sure dick miller has at times probably looked back on his career and had regrets or wondered what might have been but he's been able to do so much stuff and people love him yeah he's got a whole documentary and a whole biography i mean everybody says that like one of the reasons they like working with him is that he's such like a nice guy and that like he's genuinely fun to work with and i mean like Dick Miller will say stuff that he was always bummed that he was cut out of Pulp Fiction. There was a whole scene with him. Yeah. But, like, it wouldn't have done anything for him. No. Like, it would have just been, like, you know, an anecdote. It would have been nice to have been in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, like, one of the biggest movies ever at that time. But other than that, I don't think it would have, like, launched his career. To I mean, you know what? Who knows? Maybe he would have had a Robert Forster-like uh, <laughs> three films after it. He could have starred in a big-budget Dragon Ward-style picture. He should have played the Robert Forster role in Jackie Brown. Oh, could you imagine? I mean, I love Robert Forster, but uh, I would have definitely... I think Dick Miller could have done it. Yeah, like just set up against Pam Greer. Yeah. He's much more wrinkled than Robert Forster. I mean, it's funny we say that because he would hang out with Robert Forster at Schwab's ha, the, yeah. uh, all these years just waiting for stuff to happen. I mean, he's still kicking. Dick Miller's still around. Doesn't really take movie roles anymore for the problem. He's an old man. Yeah, he's an yeah. old man. But what a life. Like all those like people that he even came in contact with. But it's still a little sad because he talks about how like he never got that familial relationship with people either because... Like, he would only show up for a day or two. So Mm -hmm. all these people are friends or family that you have when you're shooting a film. And he never got that. He was always, like, kind of like the outsider that would come in. They wouldn't have to go away. The only time he really had that was working with Roger Corman. Mm. Think Roger Corman ever calls up Dick Miller anymore? I doubt it. (laughs) Roger Corman doesn't strike me as the sentimental type. No, not at all. It does say in the book that occasionally Jonathan Hayes calls calls up and they plan to do something and they don't do it. What about Jack Nicholson? Like, yeah, that's the what about... Okay. Like, couldn't Jack Nicholson fucking throw Miller a bone? Yeah, Jack, couldn't you have given him a role in, like, Wolf? Wolf or something <laughs> like that. I love that that's the first one we both went to, Wolf. <laughs> or he could be his best friend and, like, as good as it gets or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah why that not? That would have been perfect. Guy, guy at the bar and as good as it gets. 